Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, an update on COVID-19, the coronavirus that is spreading around the world. We take a look at a lot of different angles, including the economy. Is the United States prepared and how will that affect Canada? And is China still the golden goose after all of this? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, uh, two more cases have been confirmed in Toronto, bringing Ontario's total to 34 uh, in regard to the coronavirus. Uh, To talk more about all of this and how it is spreading, Dr. Isaac Bogosh is with us, staff physician, general internal medicine, infectious diseases, associate professor, Department of Medicine, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Isaac, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, yeah, not a problem at all. It seems that this story keeps progressing every time that we chat. What are your thoughts on where we are right now? What would you say to the public on what we're experiencing and what we're seeing? Well, I'd basically let everyone know that they should be prepared. I mean, we're seeing more and more cases in Canada. We're seeing uh, cases imported from elsewhere in the world, including the United States. And we're also seeing uh, locally acquired cases. There was a locally acquired case in British Columbia. So it's not a matter of when it's going to be here. It's here. Uh, And we're going to see more and more cases. So we should be prepared for this. And prepared in what way? What can, you know, first let's start with an individual Canadian, individual Ontarian. How can we be prepared? And then from a government standpoint. Sure. So at an individual level, people can do several things. You know, it often seems daunting sitting at the precipice of a pandemic, you know, what can I do? But essentially, you know, people who have chronic medical conditions, this is the time to go see your physician, make sure that your your health is optimized, make sure that, uh, you know, you have the appropriate amount of prescriptions for whatever you need, and make sure you're in, in, in peak health. It also is important that people are very mindful of hand hygiene. We know how this infection can be transmitted, and people should be very mindful to have impeccable hand hygiene. So, you know, if they're riding the subway or on the bus or in a school or in their workplace, just to be mindful to use alcohol, hand sanitizer, and wash your hands and, and really try not to touch your face. And, you know, it doesn't really sound like much, but it actually is. This, this works. This stuff works. So that's what people can do at an individual level. And as far as government, how do we handle this? Because we've seen different tactics all over the world, as this is obviously a global uh, situation. Uh, What are your thoughts on how government handles this? Yeah, I mean, at the sort of higher levels, we have to think about things like social distancing. And that's a term that's getting used a lot these days, and it can mean different things to different people. But essentially, I think we have to be prepared to basically spread out a little bit more, Uh, there should be some flexibility to work from home. Obviously, if people are ill, they should not be pressured to come into work, uh, and they should recover in the comfort of their own home and not get other people sick. We are starting to see things like conferences uh, cancelled and, and, you know, large sport venues and large gatherings getting cancelled. I'm not entirely sure that, you know, we need to go that far, although I'm certainly open to that suggestion. But, you know, there are ways that we can mitigate risk in these large gatherings by, you know, maybe selling a fraction of the tickets, ensuring people have access to hand sanitizers at them. But I think the point is we're going to start to see more and more of that 
uh, from a policy standpoint, which will, will certainly be helpful. Anything to learn from, not so much how to handle this disease, although I guess there's lots to, to learn there and, and so on. I guess there's many lessons to be had from China. But w- what about the progression of the disease there? We hear like around the world there's just over 100,000 that have confirmed, but there's over 55,000 that have already recovered from this. Uh, can we learn yeah. anything from how this is trending from China yet? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say not just China, but other places in the world that have a high burden of this infection, like Korea, Iran, Italy, Japan. And essentially, I think we should remember that the vast majority of people that get this infection are going to do just fine. The vast majority of people will not need to be hospitalized. They will not need to, you know, they're not going to be that sick. They'll, they'll recover in the comfort of their own home in, in a couple of days. And, and luckily, that's, that's the case. Sadly, we know that there, sir, is, there certainly is a small proportion of people that get pretty sick. And even, you know, obviously, sadly, the, uh, a fraction of those people will succumb to their illness. But, but the vast majority of people will, will do okay. And it's, it's, it's comforting to know. Uh, are we understanding that? Because there's still, you know, as this is hitting North American shores and we're seeing uh, uh, little pockets of, of the virus pop up and spread, there almost seems to be some hysteria in some Porsche, in some parts. Uh, we've seen hoarding, you know, toilet paper, things like that. Um, uh, it, it seems odd to me that, that people are, are, are sort of falling into that, and yet nobody's lining up to get a flu shot. Now, I understand the flu shot doesn't cover COVID-19, but it certainly does all those other flus that are also yeah. uh, as deadly. Are you surprised at how we're reacting to this? I'm not sure. Honestly, I think about this a lot, and I'm really not quite sure how to, how to think about it and, and, and understand the reasons why. You know, much of this might be in terms of the messaging that we're delivering, and I, I, I'm not pointing fingers, but, you know, there have been some alarmist uh, messages uh, in the past, and, and, you know, of course, everyone's got a mobile phone in their hand and has access to all the misinformation and pseudoscience that's getting amplified on various platforms. Which, by the and, way, know, that, which, which, by the way, that mobile phone may be the dirtiest of everything they're, all, they're touching, by the <laughs> yeah, way, but yeah, I digress. Exactly. Go ahead. No, exactly. But I mean, you know, I, people are doing obviously what they're doing and, 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 you know, hoarding toilet paper is not helping anybody or anything. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a little uh, upsetting to see that. And, and, you know, maybe we can do better from a medical and a public health and a media front by, um, you know, obviously speaking about the truth and, and really giving people practical tips of, of what to do without promoting hysteria, but ensuring people are, are prepared. What are we learning from this as it progresses? And I guess we're frightened because it's new. We really don't know what's going to happen, what direction it's going to take. Why are we so concerned about it? Uh, Is it just obviously the speed in which it spreads from human to human? Yeah, I mean, you know, here we've got an infection that we didn't even know existed three months ago, and now it's spreading all over the world. So, I mean, that in and of itself is important and, and raises a red flag. Uh, of course, it's unprecedented at the speed at which we've learned about this infection. And, you know, fortunately, we know that uh, that uh, most people do well. But, of course, sadly, some people don't. And I think we hear a lot about the, you know, 3,000 deaths. And uh, we see how, you know, some healthcare systems like in Iran and not in all of China, but in Hubei, yeah, the, the province of Hubei, China, how, how those healthcare systems were, were really... Um, you know, stretch beyond capacity. And, uh, you know, people might see that and, and say, well, that could be us. But I, I really think that we are going to fare a lot better than many other parts of the world. We have a very robust uh, health care system and public health system in Canada. And I think with the appropriate 
policy and the appropriate management about you know mitigation strategies to make sure that this doesn't just wallop us and that it sort of is a, a slow burn instead of a, a pounding. I think we'll I think we'll uh, I think we'll get through it better than most. Any more on when or whether this has plateaued or not? I mean, have we had a, have we hit a peak here? I guess that was my oh, earlier no. question. What I said about China, like, is yeah. can they see can they see a turning point at all yet? Yeah, I think we're in China certainly seeing fewer and fewer cases now, and and that's largely because of their control efforts. It'll be very interesting to see what happens now that they're lifting a lot of those restrictions in uh, Hubei and other parts of the province and people are sort of starting to get back to work. So it'll be very interesting to see how that how that plays out. But I, I think that they've, they're, they're well past their, their peak and I think they're on the downside of things. We're, on the other hand, we're not even close. I mean, we're only starting to see cases here and it's certainly going to, we're going to see a lot more cases before we start to see this uh, wane. So we're, we're in for a few months of this, for sure. How concerned are you on how the U.S. is handling this, and are they prepared for it? Oh, man, they really uh, botched their diagnostic testing, despite what whoever is talking at, in front of the media at whatever time. But, I mean, they just had such delays at getting their diagnostic testing out, and that really impacted... Uh, having an appreciation of which areas had uh, had been impacted by this infection. So, you know, now you hear about places like uh, Seattle and, and yeah. Washington State with a high burden of infection. And, of course, you know, there, we don't live on an island. We've, we're, we've been importing a couple of cases from the United States to Canada. There's a lot of travel between the two countries, and I think we're going to see more of that as well. But, you know, it is a, it's the biggest, richest country on the planet, and, of course, their health care system is, you know, Interesting to say the least, but I, I, I do think that uh, they'll they'll be able to get a better handle on it than uh, now rather than at the beginning. But it's never fun to play catch up. They should have been ahead of the ball for sure. Uh, here's what our minister of foreign affairs had in regard to travel. I would like to remind all Canadians who are considering traveling of the importance of taking the time to consult our travel advisories and to register with the Registration of Canadians Abroad Service in order to receive the very latest updates from the Government of Canada regarding COVID-19. The health and safety of Canadians, both at home and abroad, remains our priority. Isaac, what about traveling? I mean, you know, now we're hearing cases of people that uh, aren't coming in contact with people that necessarily haven't been to China or what have you. I mean, if you go to any tourist destination, you're going to run into people there from all over the world. I mean, how do you even whether even even if it's Disney World? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Like, I'm not sure how much they told you, but I'm I'm calling you from West Africa. I'm in the middle of the Ivory Coast right now, so here I'm traveling. And you know, you just I think we just have to be mindful of where where we're going. So certainly, I, I think the travel advisories on the government website are extremely important, and we should obey those. And you know, if there's a travel advisory, for example, to Hubei Province, it says don't go, then don't go. That's that's pretty straightforward. But in terms of travel elsewhere outside of those regions, I think you know. People will do what they do, and people will have have their own risk thresholds and, and risk tolerances. You know, I, I think there are things we can do to mitigate our risk well at the airport and on an airplane and, you know, avoiding large gatherings and whatnot. I think those are very useful strategies. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, we hear of some people canceling their trip to, you know, Chicago. Uh, and, and other people say, you know what, I, I'm fine going and, and, and continue to go. And just uh, I, I'm, I'm on that boat, and I think it's, 
I'll, I'll keep living my life, but I'll also be mindful of the world around me and, and do take steps to mitigate risk where I go. Well, first of all, let me thank you very uh, deeply for taking time out of your vacation to talk to us from the Ivory Coast. But since you have brought it up, what has your travels been like with this coronavirus? Have you seen evidence of it? Are people concerned? What's it like in yeah. other parts of the world? Yeah, just to clarify, this is not a vacation. I'm working like a dog here. <laughs> okay, I'm it's sorry. I take that my, back. My wife's listening. Yeah, no way. I, I thought maybe you're on a safari of some sort, you know. <laughs> no, no, no. But, uh, but you know, I think, um, you know, in all fairness, uh, Africa has done a pretty decent job scaling up diagnostic capacity. And, you know, I'm far from Nigeria, but it's still in the West Africa neighborhood. And, uh, you know, Nigeria has, uh, has shown tremendous success in the past with their public health initiatives. They got Ebola virus under control rapidly and impressively. And, uh, you know, they've had a couple of imported cases of this uh, COVID-19. And also they've, they've launched their big public health uh, infrastructure to do case finding and case detection. So, you know, sometimes people think of Africa and they think of it in perhaps a misguided manner. This is an incredible place. And there is there still is tremendous capacity here. So uh, they're, they're, you know, they obviously there's room for improvement, but they're still relatively in, in decent shape. What is North America going to encounter in the next uh, month or so as, as, as we see more and more cases here? I mean, my goodness, we're seeing what's, hap- what's happening economically around the world today with stock prices and such. What do you think we can expect here in North America in the next month? You know, hopefully, hopefully these uh, public health interventions and strategies to, uh, you know, isolate people if they're infected and provide a lot of education and advice to people to stay home and provide support for people to stay home and some of the canceling of these large gatherings, hopefully this will blunt the uh, spike in cases. You know, we're still going to get cases. For sure, we're going to get cases. We're going to get more and more cases. But hopefully this blunts that spike in cases so that our healthcare system is not stretched to or beyond capacity. Um, you know, and, and really that's, that's the shift now in policy is to ensure that fewer people get this and we spread this out over a bit of time rather, rather than have a steep curve of having lots and lots of people get this over a short amount of time, which would, you know, which is troubling. We saw that in, you know, Hubei province. We saw, we, that was seen in, in Iran. And, and, you know, that's when healthcare systems get stretched beyond capacity. So we should uh, be trying at, at all our hardest to, to avoid that. Dr. Uh, Isaac Bogosh has been with us, staff physician, general internal medicine, infectious disease associate professor, Department of Medicine, University of Toronto, who is in the Ivory Coast right now, but working diligently, <laughs> not on vacation, I might add. Uh, Isaac, thank right. you so much for sharing the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Have a good day. All right. You take care. Here I am painting a picture thinking that, you know, he's on a safari somewhere. No, that's not the case. He's working hard. That's all we need. His family, his wife back here. What's going on? I thought this was all business. Uh, Foreign Affairs uh, Minister has said more on the cruise ship uh, where Canadians have been stuck off the coast of California. Uh, Here's the latest from him. The government of Canada has secured the services of a plane to repatriate Canadians on board the Grand Princess, which will dock later today in the port of Oakland in California. This decision was made following a request from the government of the United States to repatriate foreign nationals aboard this ship, which has experienced an outbreak. The aircraft will transport passengers from Oakland to Canadian Forces Base Trenton, where they will be assessed and quarantined for 14 days. Passengers will be screened for symptoms before boarding the aircraft. If they exhibit symptoms, 
They will not be allowed to board and will instead be assessed further to determine next steps. All right, there you have it as uh, the coronavirus uh, slowly spreads uh, across North America. But again, as uh, Dr. Isaac Bogosh said, we have to keep all of this uh, in perspective. Uh, Over 100,000 cases reported around the world, but over 55,000 of those have already recovered. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in uh, Wendy Parmet, uh, Matthews University Distinguished Professor of Law and Professor of Public Policy and Urban Affairs, Northeastern University, and is with us now. Wendy, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Happy to be with you. Your thoughts on how this virus has progressed in the last couple of weeks now that it has hit the shores of North America, and specifically uh, the United States. Is the United States ready for this, do you think? Well, I think we're not as ready as we should be. Um, We really have known since um, mid-January that this was coming, that we were dealing with a novel coronavirus, with considerable lethality. Um, We could see the way it was spreading in China, very disturbing. And my concern, you know, just looking at it from the North American perspective, is that, especially the U.S., we just didn't do everything we could have done to be as prepared as we should have been so that, you know, we knew this was going to eventually come to North America. And um, I'm afraid, it, you know, it was not dealt with. The response was not as comprehensive or as robust as it could have been. How could uh, the U.S. have been better prepared? What, what sort of process, procedure, how would that happen? Well, the first and I think most glaring hole um is that we didn't have the testing kits up and ready, right? That there were all kinds of flaws in them. The criteria for testing um, was much too narrow and really not set in a way that would have helped us be able to observe if there was wider spread transmission. So, you know, that's the first major hole. Um, along with some colleagues, uh, a little over a week ago, we put forth an open letter to Vice President Pence and other U.S. leaders at the state and federal level outlining a series of measures that we felt should be taken. Um, and I'm glad that at least some of them are getting discussion now, but frankly, these measures should have been put in place a long time ago. For example, sick leave. Uh, there was a lot of discussion now about social distancing and the importance of people who are sick staying home. But, you know, a lot of people in the United States, low-wage workers, gig workers, really just don't have that option. So trying to make sure that people get compensation or income replacement that they don't have to choose between, you know, paying the rent um, or jeopardizing the health of other employees or customers, something we could have put in place. Um, 
messaging has not been clear and as consistent as it should have been. There are issues about, you know, complex uh, complexities of our overwhelmingly complex healthcare system, which really need to be smoothed out. Just a few days ago, the Vice President of the federal government took steps to make sure that at least for some people, uh, significant numbers of people, um, the cost of testing will be covered as an essential health benefit. But these these are the kinds of steps that should have been taken earlier because we knew this was coming. You know, it's a little bit like starting to prepare for the hurricane when the hurricane's only about 10 miles offshore. Hmm. We should prepare earlier. Uh, You talked about conflicting messaging. Um, How important is it that everybody gets on the same page? I mean, we all know how divisive the world is politically, your country, my country. It's 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 the same thing. It's it's a very divisive world at this point. Um, But but again, you don't want things like this to be used politically. Uh, How important is it that we are all on the same page? Um, you, You know, is there winners and losers in this or do we all just try to get through it? We're all trying to get through it. I don't think this should be a political issue. Um, You know, I don't think we should all be on the same page in the sense that there should be censoring or there should be, um, you know, questions and and criticism should certainly not be suppressed. That's certainly not what I'm suggesting. Um, But I do think it's important that, the high, at the highest level, that political leaders, um, you know, say, you know, defer to the experts and repeat what the experts are saying. And I think it's very hard when the public is getting very different messaging from, you know, it's just a cold to it's a hoax to stay home if you're sick. And honestly, um, what is, you know, what can we expect individuals to do? The confusion, and, and some confusion is understandable, right? We're, we're still in the fog of war. New information is being learned every day. Um, you know, nobody has all the answers. But people need to level with the public about that. This is hard. We're learning more. Here's what we know. Here's what we don't know. Here's the best advice we can give you, and the advice might change. But talk to the public like grown-ups, and don't politicize it because people, first of all, panic is going to be, you know, fear is understandable right now. Um, but the best way to stroke panic is confusion. And for people to feel like there's no one really in charge, that nobody knows what they're saying because everybody's saying something else, that's, you know, not the way, the best way to get through emergencies. How uh, damaging was it that the president did use the word hoax in all of this? Well, you know, I can't assess that. I don't know how damaging it is. All I want to stress again is that um, honest, transparent messaging that re- that is based on the science. The best science we got is really important. And, you know, that was unfortunate, but I don't know how to measure how damaging that was. 
Where do you think America will be in one month? I, you know, I don't, I, it's hard to say. I, I, I don't have the tea leaves um, to see that. I think we'll know more. Um, I think, you know, we will get through this. Um, but I do think there are some, you know, it, it, we're, I don't know whether whether one month or it's six weeks or it's eight weeks or it's four months. I mean, I just I don't think I don't think we know that yet. How do you balance the information on this virus when um, obviously at this point it doesn't seem to be as deadly as other viruses like it, say, for example, SARS. But the, the great concern is obviously the, the speed in which it spreads from human to human. So how do we learn from what the rest of the world has already gone through and balance all of this out so people are prepared, mindful about it, conscious about it? Uh, but not freaking out and hoarding toilet paper like we've seen up here. Right. You know, it's a great challenge, right? It's absolutely a great challenge. One of the things is we don't want people to freak out. We don't want people to panic. Um, It's exceptionally counterproductive to do that. I think some concern is reasonable. I think one of the particular challenges of this disease is that it's both incredibly serious um, and also, so it seems, and you know, I'm not the doctor, I'm not, a, I'm speaking to you as a public health lawyer, not, a, not an MD, but you know, most people will survive and many, many will have very mild illness, which is good, but it's also challenging. And the challenging part is to get the people who are mildly ill to take it seriously, to recognize that we're all in this together. Um, that they need, you know, we need those people who are in lower risk groups need to care for the people who are in the higher risk groups. And one of the ways I think we do this, and this is why things like sick pay and other specific proposals that we've put forth, I think are so important is as a society, we need to recognize that we want to make it feasible and show that it is appreciated when people care about their neighbor. And, you know, staying home when you're sick, even if you're okay, is a way of caring about your neighbor. But, it's the, you know, if society's not supporting in that decision, one way that um, many in public health ethics think about things like self-quarantine, social distancing measures, and many of these other measures is, you know, we like to think about them as almost as like jury duty, right? Jury duty is something that yeah. we do. The honor system. Um, for others. Yeah. And, you know, it's a, it's a civic obligation, but it's also respected. Like, my employer can't fire me if I'm out for jury duty. And we need to kind of think about measures like that. Because if we ask individuals, again, particularly low-wage workers, you know, to put their own family security on the line versus not taking public transportation when they're coughing, right? I mean, it's unfair to ask people to do these things. We need to make it possible for people to do the right thing. Uh, Any more word on a vaccine and will that alleviate the anxiety? 
Well, I am not, you know, I, I, I'm not. Um, what I find fascinating about this, and the reason that I brought this up, is that, uh, you know, we've seen situations where people are hoarding things, yet no one is lining up to get a flu shot. Now, we all know that COVID-19 isn't covered by the flu shot. Right. Uh, it's a different strain, but, you know, the other forms of flu often kill more people than COVID-19. But people aren't concerned about that. Well, you know, I, I do think one thing I will say about the flu shot is it's really helpful to the healthcare system right now if people don't get the flu. And one of the things that is going to make this particularly challenging for the healthcare system is that it is that this outbreak is hitting us before the flu season ends and many of the symptoms are similar to flu. And that means lots of people are showing up, right, at doctor's offices, ERs with the flu, thinking they have COVID. People think yeah. have COVID and they think, oh, it's just the flu. Reducing the incidence of flu is going is helpful to reducing the demand on the healthcare system. The one of the great problems we have right now, um, or we may have, we have to prepare for, is a better way to put it, um, will be what happens. When, if and when more people show up needing significant medical care than our hospitals and healthcare centers can handle, that's happening right now in Italy and it certainly happens in China. And <clears throat> the flu shot will not protect you against COVID, but if it keeps you out of the emergency department with yeah. the flu, you're making space for COVID. In the long term, you know, I, I, I listened to uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci at the USNIH. You know, I think that there's great reason to believe that there will be a vaccine at some point. This is a novel coronavirus, but it's not a completely, um, you know, it's not a, it's yeah. in a family of viruses that scientists have studied in the past. So they're not starting, you know, totally in the dark. I, I and that may be the response, you know, ultimately the answer, but certainly we have a ways to go for that. So we have to rely on public health measures and social distancing and supporting one another and, you know, common sense. Wendy Parmet has been with us, Matthews University, Distinguished Professor of Law and Public Policy and Urban Affairs, Northeastern University. Uh, Wendy, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Nice to talk to you. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking about coronavirus today, lots of chatter in regard to, uh, as I mentioned, uh, the economic uh, fallout of all of this and uh, the slide in the stock market that we've seen and the halt to trading and such. Uh, let's decode all this, see if we can get everybody to calm down just a little bit. We'll bring in Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Your thoughts on what has happened since the markets have opened up and we, you know, the, the, the halt in trading and such, uh, how do you decode all of this? Well, it's all connected to coronavirus, and I just want to connect the dots very quickly. Um, uh, because the crash in the capital markets was because of the crash in oil prices. Oil prices collapsed because Russia and Saudi Arabia two of the three largest producers of oil in the world, along with the United States, they're the big three, those two could not agree last week in Vienna at an OPEC meeting to reduce uh, the production of oil. 
They wanted to dramatically cut back the production of oil over a million barrels a day uh, to keep prices up. Why did they want to cut back production of oil? Because there's too much oil. Why is there too much oil? Because China, which is the second largest economy in the world, but the largest importer of oil in the world, saw its oil consumption drop by 20% a day across the totality of China because of the coronavirus, because factories are closed, because they closed down Wuhan, because they, they did all of these uh, efforts to contain the virus. And, of course, people are staying home in China and not going to, uh, to work. And so uh, oil is down dramatic. Consumption is down dramatically. That feeds into the markets because China is such a huge buyer of oil. That started to push the price down. Saudi said, wait a minute, let, let, let's, let's counteract this by cutting back oil output. Went, along to, went to Russia and the other OPEC countries. The other OPEC countries said yes. Then they brought in, well, they brought in Russia, and Russia, after three days of negotiation, said, no, no, we're out of here. We're not going to share in the pain. We're just going to pump oil like no tomorrow. And so Saudi said, okay, we're going to get you back. I'm being colloquial here to get my point across. And so what Saudi did is they said, okay, we're going to slash. We're going to really put pain on you. We're going to slash price, which they did. They cut the price of oil by 6 $7 a barrel to China, their largest customer. And then to really rub it in, they said, we're going to pump a million more barrels a day, even though there's too much oil in the world right now. And in other words, they are playing a huge game of global oil chicken. And Saudi is squeezing the, the, the hell out of Russia. And, and people can say, well, you know, Russia is a huge country. It is. has huge amounts of oil. But the critical metric, which nobody's talking about in the media, uh, because most people don't study this, is you've got to look at the cost to extract a barrel of oil from the ground. Mm-hmm. And it varies from literally oil well to oil well from producer to producer to producer. Saudi has the cheapest, I've read this in Bloomberg and other, a whole bunch of research I've done, Saudi Arabia has the cheapest oil in the world because their oil is only two to 400 feet down on the ground and it's in sand. And it's really cheap to bring up. Around 15, they can break even at around 15, 17 dollars a barrel, U.S. Russia's cost is somewhere in the 40s from what I've read. Now, really, they're not transparent countries, either one of them, but that's the best estimates of people in the industry. And so uh, Russia has much higher costs. By the way, so does Canada and the United States. They're in the 40. The U.S. shale producers are in the 40, 45, 50 dollar a barrel to create, to extract it. That's your break even. Canada's up in the 50s and 60s. So it's really simple arithmetic to say if the oil price drops down to 30 and your cost of production is 40 or 45, you are getting whacked big time. Where does this leave the Canadian energy industry? Oh, in terrible shape, terrible shape. And, and let me unpack that, too. Um, I mean, whenever you're talking industry, you can't just make generalizations across the board because not all companies are equal. Exxon is clearly not going to go bankrupt. Neither is Royal Dutch Shell. Neither is BP. The giants, the mega giants, are not. they're going to hurt. They're going to probably have a quarter or two of losses, but they're so gigantic that they, this is like a flea on the back of their, you know, yeah. and, you know like a mosquito bite. Uh, the, the small and mid-sized companies that are overextended, uh, they're heavily indebted, and you're going to see bankruptcies. And I don't just mean in Canada, you're going to see them in the States, 
But for sure, you're going to see in Canada, maybe the bankers were saying, well, we'll carry you along because we think you can turn the corner. This will probably be the, uh, not the icing on the cake, the uh, coup de gras that will kill off, knock off some of the smaller, weaker companies. That's the essence, that's the nature of market economies. You know, the weakest companies go the most quickly. And uh, that's good. They're going to get laid off. So this is going to feed back into the unemployment. Those people will have less money to spend on, you know, cars and trucks and, and so forth. And so it's going to be, this is bad news for the Canadian economy. And remember one other thing. The Canadian government, the government of Canada, and the Alberta government especially, get uh, very large amounts of oil revenues, royalties, excuse me, from the oil companies, uh, from their revenues. And and so this, uh, the governments are going to take a hit because their revenues are going to go down. Same applies to the United States, by the way. So it, it, this is bad news, especially for us as oil producers. But for those who say, you know, there might be listeners saying, look, I'm in southern Ontario. I'm not in the oil industry. You know, Ian Lee's in the ivory tower and, you know, in the uh, university. What's the problem for him? The problem is we're all connected. And uh, the economy is all connected. You know, the GDP is all of us together, you know, and uh, one person's salary is another person's expenditure. And, uh, Once you know. the coronavirus uh, levels out, subsides, plateaus, what have you, uh, right. do you see oil prices coming back up? Because, you know, again, I'll have many experts on here or some experts on here that will say uh, this is it for the Canadian oil industry. We're never going to see prices back up again. The world just doesn't need oil anymore. Um, let me jump to your final thing. And I know you're not saying it, you're just quoting people. This is the wishful thinking of, um, and, and I don't consult the oil industry. I don't have any shares or investments of any kind. All I do is spend all day long studying data from reliable sources like the International Energy Authority, like StatsCan, like the U.S. Department of Energy, and so forth. That's what I do with my life, because that's how I get my kicks. And so I am evidence-based using real data, not ideology from Engos or others who want to see the end of oil. The IEA which is in Paris, which is the global think tank for energy. And it's not owned by the oil companies. It's funded and operated basically by the OECD countries, just like the IMF and the World Bank. It's one of those international agencies. And they've looked at this, and they said there's going to be growing demand for oil right out to past 2050. And the reason is very clear, because the world population is growing by another 2 billion people. And, yes, renewables are growing. Yes, they're going up. The IEA has put the data out there. But the, uh, the renewables around the world of every country are being used to fund the growth and the demand for net new more energy. And oil is still going to be used. In fact, increasing amounts of oil. So if you look at that data and you accept that data, which is nonpartisan, it's not from an NGO trying to sell some point of view. They're just, you know, they're like a statistical agency. And if you accept that forecast that as the world economy expands in terms of people and in terms of GDP around the world, there's going to be more demand for energy. And the renewables, according to IEA and others, cannot fulfill or serve all of the increased demand. And so, yes, there's a role for renewables. Yes, they're going to continue to grow in importance. But because the world economy is continuing to grow, 2 billion more people by 2050, and these low of, of, of countries, the, the poor countries, are growing. Their standard of living is going up. And as countries move up the curve, they use more energy. And so the reality is we're going to need more oil and more renewables, by the way, 
going out to 2050 and beyond. So once you, uh, though you see that data and, and accept it or not, <laughs> then you realize the price of oil is going to come back. Now, I'm not suggesting it's going to go to 100 or 200. I'm not suggesting that at all. But if you're asking me, is it going to go back from where it is right now at 32 or 34 or 35 to 60 or something in that range, that's certainly what the IEA has been forecasting, and a lot of people have. This is a temporary situation caused by a collapse in demand by the largest consumer of oil in the world called China. And that's because they basically shut down their economy because of quarantining. But it will pass unless we think that the coronavirus is going to be around forever and ever and ever, which most people don't believe. I don't believe that. You know, uh, these epidemics and pandemics do pass. They do work their way through. And I'm not saying there won't be pain in the short run, but the economy will come back. In fact, most economists right now are predicting a short recession, a sharp recession, but that will bounce back fairly quickly. Once the virus has, the pandemic has gone away, then we will uh, return to, when I say normal, we'll return to a, a normal, normal state. And so I do, I do think that's going, going to happen. But I do think oil prices will come back. Where they'll come back, I mean, I presume at some where around the level they were before this crisis, because that was the, the the balance, that was the supply and demand interaction, and said that the market price was worth around $60 a barrel and uh, in terms of supply and demand. So I assume it's going to be somewhere in that neighborhood. What about the United States? We're starting to see, obviously, more cases there over the last week or so. What about their response? Have they been ready? And if not, how does that affect us in Canada? Yeah, I mean, it really, really hinges, and I, I want to disclose, I keep saying this, I'm not an epidemiologist. All I do is look at the data, because I'm a numbers guy. And fortunately, uh, the, uh, the World Health Organization has published excellent data on their preliminary research in China on the, on the illness, and how many have been infected versus how many have died, and so forth. And the Center for Disease Control, which is a world-class and superb uh, healthcare agency of the U.S. government, uh, has got enormous statistics uh, in the, from the past. And I'm talking right up to the present when I say the past, up to 2019. And uh, showing um, the, um, the, the, you know, the, the, every mortality of every illness. You know, you want to know how many people die of cancer a year? It's there. How many die from pulmonary respiratory diseases? It's there. Car accidents, gunshots, uh, you know, murders, homicides? It's there. Suicide? It's there. Um, and flu. And the CDC states... This is empirical hard data, not, not a forecast of the future. In the past, in the last several years, the average mortality rate annually in the United States of America has been around 50,000 from ordinary flu, 50,000. And the, the, the coronavirus has not come even remotely, remotely close to killing 50,000 people. Whether it will or not, I have no idea. But uh, I'm just trying to put this into context that uh, in the, according to the CDC, somewhere in the neighborhood of 8% of Americans um, uh, acquire or become infected with ordinary flu during the year. 8% of 330 million people. It's a lot of people. And of that number, about 50,000 die. Uh, overwhelmingly older people with compromised immune systems. So what I'm trying to say is we don't yet know how deadly this is really going to be in the States. Uh, or in Canada. It, it hasn't broken out yet like it did in China or South Korea uh, or uh, in Italy. And what's pa- fascinating me is that it's breaking out in some areas, and we know that, it's widely reported in the media, but it's not breaking out in very large numbers in other areas, such as Canada, the States. It could be a lag, 
or it could be lack of testing, or it could be some other factor that we just don't understand yet. What about China at this point? We've heard that there's over 100,000 people infected worldwide, but of that, over 55,000 have already recovered. Is China starting to see that? How much of China is paralyzed by this at this point? There's two separate questions there. Um, how many are still basically sick, and and uh, is the economy still shut down or or largely shut down? Um, and I want to give the caveat, and you and I have talked about this in a different context. And much as I like going to China, and I've been teaching there since 1997, once a year on an MBA program, uh, and I was supposed to be going there, by the way, in two weeks from now, but my ticket was canceled, and I'm not going this year. They anymore. did cancel it, eh? Oh, they yeah, certainly did. Yeah. In fact, the universities are all closed down across yeah, China. Every one yeah. of them are closed. Every classroom, not just MBA, all classes, all all buildings. Uh, but the problem with China, and it's been discussed by, you know, Bloomberg, you can go and read articles there, and the, the Goldman Sachs of the world and so forth. There's been a, re- a very strong, serious debate going on for, oh my goodness, at least five or ten years about how trustworthy is the data coming out of China, whether it's GDP data or inflation data or corporate indebtedness of state-owned enterprises. And the problem is, is the data is not that reliable because the Chinese, let me put it really bluntly, the Chinese government lies, <laughs> and it lies regularly. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, there's been a great deal of debate in the last two years. Is the GDP really at 6.5%? Or And there's serious economists who look at this and crunch the numbers, and they say, no, 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 no. It's not 6.5%. It's probably 4%. And some actually say, it's no, it's probably 2%. So that's just the GDP data. Right now, now to get to your point, right now they're claiming that they've turned the corner on the coronavirus, that is to say, new infections are dropping by the day, they claim. And I, I don't know, I'm not there, and I don't have access to the data. But anything that comes out of the Chinese government, I think has to be, especially right now, it has to be taken with a, many grains of salt, maybe a whole bag of salt, because the Chinese government feels very vulnerable in this. You know, they've always argued, oh, our way of life and the Chinese exceptionalized system is always going to give you a better lifestyle and then more protection mm-hmm. than, the, you know, the, the wild and crazy and loosey-goosey capitalist democratic systems. And so there's a lot of propaganda in there in the Chinese uh, PRC, People's Republic of China, message. And they've always sold this, that we, you've got a better world here uh, with the, our style of government, our regime. And this has really shaken them to the core. And so they wanted to report as quickly as possible that they solved the crisis and that it's behind them. The problem is that the data is showing, and now I'm talking data like oil consumption, it has not returned to normal, which tells us what? That the factories are not all up and running again. <laughs> you know, And there's other metrics out there when you dig into some of the trade blogs and so forth that the electricity uh, consumption is down, still down dramatically. So the Chinese economy is coming back. I'm not suggesting it's absolutely flattened its back anymore, but it has not yet returned to, let's call it, normal levels. And so, you know, is there a gap between what the Chinese government's claiming and the reality? Possibly. Probably. <laughs> but it's, I, I'm not suggesting that everything they're saying is false, but maybe the degree of victory right. is not as, right. as real as they're claiming. Maybe it's coming back more slowly. Maybe the, 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 the number of infections are declining more slowly than the government's claiming. It would appear uh, that they're coming back in some degree. I talked to a, a friend of mine who lives in Shanghai, and he just sent me an email yesterday morning. He says the restaurants in Shanghai, which is a 30 million city, he says the restaurants are still empty, the streets are still empty, mm. the shopping centers are empty. 
And that, to me, is the acid test. If there's millions of people not out there doing what they do in normal life, you know, just going about their business, going to grocery stores, going to clothing stores, electronic stores, yeah. you know, going to everywhere, and just, you know, go out and, you know, spending your money. If, never, if, if most people are not doing that and they're staying home, then you know the economy is taking a hit. You don't even have to look up the statistics. You don't even have to wait for them. You just can see it with your eyes when it's that visible. Ian, we've talked at length in the past, uh, actually before coronavirus, uh, in regard to how perception has changed on China. Again, for decades, the golden yeah. goose, everyone wants a piece of it. Yeah. Uh, then things started to change. Uh, the detainment of the Huawei CFO, uh, the two Michaels, um, you know, the whole dispute over 5G and stuff. Uh, now yeah. we're talking coronavirus and, you know, a, a prominent industrial country that's having a very hard time controlling this within its own country. And not only that has spread it across the world. So what does that do for China in its standing in the world? What responsibility do they have in all of this? It's interesting you've asked that. Um, I've been on a blog and going back and forth about 10 of the people who are not academics. Most of them are business people, trade people, and that sort of thing. Older people, you know, educated, traveled a lot. And, uh, and and we are sometimes in agreement, sometimes in disagreement. But I was uh, arguing last night in my blog exchange, uh, writing these are writing you know written sort of statements back and forth to each other to about ten people copied. And uh, I was arguing that if you step back way back and do really big picture, who is the real losers and are there any winners? And there are winners, believe it or not. But let's talk about the loser. I do believe that China is the biggest loser of all in this whole imbroglio of the last three months. Because not only did they get hit harder than everybody else, just in the most immediate sense, from the virus, that's obvious, everybody gets that. But I think that there's going to be longer-term blowback against President Xi, because he is going to be, uh, when this is all over, and then they start talking behind closed doors what went wrong, Mm. I think that they're going to blame him and the regime for becoming too dependent on U.S., uh, principally the U.S., and uh, that gave uh, President Trump enormous leverage. I'm talking before the virus. Yeah. I'm talking the, 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 the tariffs. And they did not restructure. They had a 20-year window where they were growing like crazy. Money was falling out of the sky onto China. And they could have used that huge bounty to restructure and diversify the economy. And they didn't. I think it's very clear they didn't. They're completely dependent, and they stayed with the old export model of, you know, uh, keep wages down, keep the currency suppressed, to give a competitive advantage to your companies, and then just dump that stuff into, into Canada, into Walmart, and Home Depot, and Lowe's and Canadian Tire stores, and Europe, too. And, and they didn't, and so they're losing in, in that sense. And the third point is, is that the, the other countries, and I'm talking U.S., Canada, and Europe, They've seen how vulnerable their supply chains are yeah. in this crisis. And making and, alternative options. Now. And I think yeah. you're going to see a lot of, over the next few years, um, a very quiet and slow but steady reshoring, bringing back, I'm not saying everything, yeah. but they'll be bringing back quite a bit of it. And I'm not even saying they'll bring it back to the States or Canada. Maybe they'll bring it to Mexico or somebody yeah. cl- somewhere closer to home that is more stable, meaning they don't have a hostile relationship with. Right. Like could be Mexico, for example. Right. Uh, Europe could be setting up supply chains in Africa, which is next door. Um, so I think that China is the big loser in this, not only in the immediate sense, but in the longer term 
long-term sense, the more strategic sense yeah. of down the road. They're going to pay a price for this, and it's going to hurt their economic development going forward. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Alyssa Freeman, thank you so much for the time as always. Much appreciated. Oh, as always, Scott. What do you want to talk about first? Let's talk about the plunging stock market and everybody going to hell in a handbasket as a result of the coronavirus. Uh, We've been living this for a couple of weeks now, a few weeks, a couple of months, actually. And we saw it from afar. Now we're seeing it hit close to home. We've uh, actually, I'm going to play this clip first before we get into this. This is Dr. Bonnie Henry, uh, medical health officer in British Columbia. They have announced uh, their first death from COVID-19. We unfortunately have had a death here in British Columbia. We are deeply saddened to uh, to hear that uh, one of the residents of the Lynn Valley Care Home who was infected with COVID-19 passed away last night. And our heartfelt condolences go out to his family and loved ones and also, of course, to the staff who provided him care. All right, Alyssa, how has this discussion changed now that it has hit our shores? Well, has it changed? I mean, people are... I think the discussion has changed that people are now starting to perhaps know people that have had COVID-19. So before it was, okay, this is in a faraway place, as you had mentioned, you know, I can't really relate to this. But then I think what people are now understanding is that the spread is cannot be controlled. Uh, we can try and uh, take some mitigating factors to um, inhibit the spread, uh, make sure that there's lots of testing, and keep those messages out. You know, you played that little clip, um, I think it was from the BC, what, what was she? She was the yeah, Minister of Health, yeah. Minister of Health. You know, what I really want... Was I'm sorry, to, a medical health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry. Health officer. Yeah. You know, what I was really waiting to hear, Scott, was, however, you know, I mean, right now that we, we see a lot of these cases that are being isolated to care homes that are... adversely affecting a senior part of the population versus a younger part of the population. So what I'm missing in terms of information is, is that coherent and that consistent message that comes out after each and every one of these pieces of breaking news that the medical officer of health has to distribute. So, you know, if I was to like give an analysis of this woman's um, report, such as I heard it, it was, you know, she struck the right tone. It was very solemn. You know, she was giving thanks. And I'm like, okay, enough. Can you please just like tell us where we're at with this thing? And, and I get that. And I get that. I'm not minimizing the tragedy at all. But yeah. what I'm not hearing, even, you know, from Minister Christine Elliott here in this province, you know, I'm hearing that, yes, there is protocol. Yes, we have a good line in with the federal government. And don't worry until we tell you to. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm hearing. But you know what? I, you know, there's a million other sources that I can go check between, you know, now and the next five minutes that might tell me the same thing or that might tell me something different. So, for example, I mean, people, I'm sure all sorts of uh, people are in group text. I just got one from mine and said that, you know, many schools in New York State are now going to shut down and engage in virtual learning after the spring break. And we know that all of Northern Italy and soon not, soon that whole quadrant may be quarantined from people, you know, actually leaving Milan and Venice. What about your thoughts on how the U.S. is 
handling this, uh, whether prepared or not. We're certainly getting mixed messages uh, from the president and such, uh, even earlier on calling this a hoax. Uh, how important is it to keep the politics out of this? And, like, there's no winners and losers here. And that's what he seems to be unable to do, and that is a real problem. Because he may be calling it a hoax, and reporters have called him on it and also, you know, his undersecretaries about it say, you know, are you calling this a hoax? And they won't answer the question. The reason they won't answer the question and the reason that Mike Pence is uh, being very cagey in each and every response is, is that they're worried about the stock market. Like, I can't think that there is any other reason that to try and quell um, disinterest or worry in this virus than by saying, listen, don't worry about it. You know, it's being taken care of. You know, uh, everything is status quo. But you can't insulate yourself. You, uh, you know, it's almost as if President Trump is talking like nobody else is hearing any other messages other than the ones that he is giving the American people. Well, it's not as if you can use the same sort of strategy as you're using for Hillary's emails or fake news or Russia or, you know, where you just say the opposite to what is other people, I guess, percep- other people's perception of the truth. And if you repeat it loud enough, uh, people will start believing it. I mean, this is either you're sick or you're not sick. It's, it's, it's either based in fact or it isn't. This isn't hearsay. This is medical, this is medical information we're trying to get clear here. Well, this is it. And when you rely on the same formulas, just saying, okay, well, let's just do what we usually do. Let's just say the opposite and our base will believe us and hopefully more people will too. But this doesn't, you know, the, the, when he does say the opposite, it's usually of issues that are really just endemic to the U.S. and may not have relevance elsewhere. But here is a, a, a virus that essentially, in a very uh, tragic way, unites us all. So if you see one country taking extreme measures and you see other states starting to take extreme measures, you can't say that it doesn't exist because obviously it does exist. So you really have to have a reality check. And I think that as president, what you want to do is use your platform and show authority and show that you are taking control of the situation. Because while the administration says one thing, you know, all the reporters go run to the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, and they say they talk to the top guy, I think his name is, um, or infectious guy, Dr. Fauci, and they say, well, you know, it's not a pandemic. Well, will it be? And you can just see the doctors looking at the reporters with their eyes saying, yeah, we're about five minutes from that. Mm. But no, it's not. But when it is you know, fill in the blank. So what do people do with that information? They fill in their own blank, Scott, and therein lies the problem. Then you have, you know, the stock market, the stock market taking a tumble. You have people running to Costco and Walmart and, you know, stocking yeah. up on hand sanitizer and, and toilet paper. I went to my local shopper's drug mart and actually went to the pharmacist because I had heard that the, the pharmacies were now having the hand sanitizer behind the counter. <laughs> It's nuts. Yet nobody's lining. Out. Yet nobody's lining up for a flu shot. Although I know that doesn't cover COVID nineteen, it still covers the other flus, which are often more deadly than the COVID nineteen. No one's lining up for a flu shot. Yet everybody's lining up for toilet paper. Like I mean, how do you explain that, Alyssa? It's because what people feel that they can take control of. Why people don't line up for flu shots is because they don't really see a clear and present danger to it. And they feel that, oh, well, they're just guessing as to what... So they're going to get COVID-19, but they're not going to get the flu. Pretty much. So, but you, but you know what, the flu, um, you know, when you, when you talk about the flu, at least there are consistent messages on why you should t- get the shot. 
So if you wanted to look up whether you should or should not get the shot, the messages are there on any local public health website. But it's the same messages that you're going to see if you were in another city, another community, another province, another country. With COVID-19, every jurisdiction, whether it's its its own country or its own community, is essentially creating rules that help them at this moment. So there's no sort of international protocol of what they're saying to do. I'm sure that there's very strong suggestions, such as restricting travel or restricting, um, you know, conferences where there'll be large gatherings of people, and that way we can't track the spread. And people are taking that very seriously. Mm. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.